Welcome to Talk World Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk World Radio, Iran, the United States, war, and peace. Our guest, Yasmin Taib, is a human rights lawyer, a progressive strategist, and a former DNC committee woman for the Commonwealth of Virginia. Previously, she served as a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and a senior policy counsel at Demand Progress. She's a seasoned human rights lobbyist, and her efforts focus on ending militarism at home and abroad and advocating for refugees and asylum seekers. In 2021, she was named by Washingtonian Magazine as one of the most influential people in Washington, probably the first of uh, any of those that I've had on this program. In 2016, Yasmin became the first Muslim woman elected to the Democratic National Committee. She has advised and worked on several national and state political campaigns, including on President Obama's re-election campaign. Yasmin Taib, welcome to Talk World Radio. Thank you so much, David, for having me. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for the work you're doing. How did you get started in the sort of work you're doing now? Sure. So um, I guess for me, uh, similar to many of, of my colleagues, I decided to get involved in, um, in civil and human rights issues uh, post 9-11. So I, I originally was, was pre-med similar to, you know, an undergrad, similar to a lot of um, folks from, from the Middle East region. And, um, and really what kind of shaped my view and in, in, in terms of working to influence U.S. policy and engagement with the world was um, the attacks on 9-11. And just a little about myself, I'm, you know, Iranian-American. I, um, my family and I actually left Iran during the Iran-Iraq War. The, circ the circumstances um, by which we we left the country was rather kind of traumatic. Um, my older brother, who's 15 at the time, was about to get drafted to to go to war, so we had to flee. Um, and we, at that time, had tried different avenues to try to get a visa to come to the U.S., which, where my father was was living. We weren't successful, so we finally resorted to doing what a lot of families you see right now at, at our southern border. Um, we came through, you know, we came to the U.S. through Tijuana. Uh, I grew up undocumented, similar to my siblings, and we became naturalized. Um, most of us in college uh, were now all of us contributing to our communities. I have siblings who are for doctors, and as you noted, I'm uh, a human rights lawyer. And really, the reason why I work on these issues is 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 one, um, I advocate for refugees and asylum seekers because I want to ensure that um, the opportunities that were afforded to me and my family are available to the countless other families right now that were seen fleeing uh, violence and persecution who are. Um, you know, I mean, right now our policy is to not allow any adults in, right? And and we have tens of thousands of unaccompanied children right now uh, stuck in in these uh, adult detention facilities or these overcrowded detention facilities in the middle of a pandemic, which has absolutely no place for for children. So, you know, for me, I these these issues that I work on are, are personal, and I hopefully 
um, I try my best to to try to make an impact uh, by talking a little bit about my personal story and why I work on these issues. Very good answer. Very glad you're doing it. Before clicking to come onto this uh radio studio here. I, I read at truthout.org an interview with Noam Chomsky with the headline something like, Biden's foreign policy looks pretty much like Trump's foreign policy. Do you agree, disagree? What are you seeing in the past two months and more? So, um, so I mean, David, you've probably noticed that there's, there's a, a couple of key priorities that progressives have been pushing the Biden administration on. Um, I mean, I'll just quickly go through them. Um, President Biden, during his campaign, he, uh, as a candidate, he really campaigned on centering human rights in our foreign policy, which meant, you know, a number of our organizations have have called on President Biden to, uh, you know, end support for for countries who, uh, you know, are in violation of of systematic human rights, uh, you know. Um, the vast majority of the progressive movement throughout the campaign and now these first few months has been calling on the administration to end the maximum pressure campaign and, and the sanctions that were imposed during the Trump administration on Iran and to rejoin the JCPOA. Unfortunately, as you know, that hasn't happened. And, and you know, this week in particular is, is a national week of action that's being led by our colleagues at the National Iranian American Council. And we're getting very concerned um, when we're talking specifically on JCPOA reentry, that window is is closing and anti-war activists, um, you know, and it's not just progressives, as you know, are, are rightfully concerned that we may miss this opportunity. And uh, as you know, there's a, a number, a host of other issues. Um, another kind of um, major issue for progressives has been trying to um, influence the administration, calling and pleading with the administration to reduce the Pentagon budget, as you know, throughout the campaign, the organizations and um, dozens of legislators were calling on Biden to support a 10% cut to the Pentagon budget, which would simply bring it honestly back to the Obama era numbers. Um, you know, because when we talk about a 10% cut, what does that mean? We're simply asking for it to be brought back to what it previously was. And unfortunately, that hasn't been something that the administration has committed to. And the letter that you know that 50 Democrats, House Democrats sent to President Biden a couple of weeks ago, uh, simply called on him. It didn't even ask for a, a number from my understanding. It simply called on him to send a reduced budget um, to, to Congress. Yeah. So, um, so there's there's a you know there's a long way for us to go. There's been some op- optimistic actions that, he, as you know, he's taken in terms of at least cutting off um, you know offensive support for the Saudi-led coalition war in Yemen. Uh, a lot of activists, again, throughout the campaign and now, have been asking for you know what does that mean? <laughs> we're still providing you know arms to Saudi Arabia, whether you want to call it defensive you know, measures that, that, that they're, they're using it for themselves, it, you know, to activists working on the issue that's still unacceptable. We're talking about providing arms and, and security assistance to countries, again, who are, you know, in just violating human rights. And um, when we're talking about Yemen, just fueling this, this, the worst humanitarian crisis ever. So yeah, it seems like on on Iran, uh, there's almost this pretense of surprise. But people like you and anybody who was 
following this aren't finding anything surprising about the fact that there's this limited window. There are elections coming up in Iran. It was the United States that pulled out of the agreement. It's the United States that would be expected to rejoin the agreement. Uh, Iran was was demanding that the sanctions be lifted. Uh, you know, this was all known by everyone. Anthony Blinken, no doubt included, before the election, before the inauguration. Uh, it seems to me that making peace with Iran would be so incredibly easy if anybody wanted it. Uh, and so what are, what's your analysis of the, of the intentions here? I mean, it seems this, the mm -hmm. failure to learn the lessons from the Trump era can't possibly actually be a failure. I, I mean, this has got to be intentional. We, we saw, uh, without any evidence whatsoever, a couple weeks back, uh, this, you know, allegation that Iran was planning to attack an army base in the middle of Washington, D.C. Uh, Iran is incredibly valuable as an enemy if you manufacture and sell weapons. Um, it, 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 is there really the, and you now have as, as this deputy envoy to Iran, this guy, uh, Richard Nephew, who has bragged about the human misery he's helped mm -hmm. cause with sanctions. It, is, is it possible that, that, it, that there's really incompetence to explain all of this? Or do these people really want peace with Iran? Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to tell because, uh, so, so the initial hires, the foreign policy hires that, you, that you, you, you saw, that we all saw, these were folks, right, like Rob Malley, Jake Sullivan, um, Wendy Sherman, these are like the brains behind the Iran deal, super supportive. And, you know, the understanding was that, oh, Biden is surrounded with these great people who are pro JCPOA and, you know, folks need to just calm down and things will work out. I mean, that's what I was told. Uh, that's what a lot of other advocates were told and believed. And now we're, you know, at, at the end of March and, and again, my colleagues and I are, are very concerned. We, we honestly don't know what to believe at this point. We don't know if the delay is because of other domestic priorities, right? Because the president is, you know, dealing right now, not just with a, a, a global pandemic, but he's now dealing with a human, humanitarian crisis at our southern border. And I, 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 you know, to give him the benefit of the doubt. I mean, folks can say, you know, he's he's working on other more pressing issues. But I would say this is, I mean, JCPOA reentry. I would I would put it in top one or two, you know, top issues that <laughs> that um, the Biden administration should be focusing on right now. And again, the window, as as you've noted, is is closing. The elections are coming up in Iran, and the concern is that. You know, if it doesn't happen in the next couple of weeks, then nothing is going to happen until September. Right. So and by then, you know, folks are speculating that at that point, the deal may just not even be viable. So I I mean, I would encourage activists to, to keep pressuring the administration. Again, a week of action is happening right now. We're ha we have, a, as you know, David, the massive uh, joint action list swap that Daily Coast is running for us that started today. That'll run for an entire month. I think 
you know, it would be helpful for the administration to continue to see this kind of groundswell and, and see pressure, not just from, you know, grassroots activists and, and community members, from, from voters, but also legislators, right? There's been a ton of letters that have been sent to him. Um, and I think we just need to continue to, to keep pressure on the administration. Yasmin Taib, where should people go online if they want to contact the White House, Congress, sign the sign the strongest petition, etc.? So uh, the Daily Coast petition, <laughs> I don't have the link on me, um, but I'm but I'm happy to sh- to, sh- to but, share but that. Go to dailycoast.com. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and and I would recommend also groups I work with that are on on top of this. Uh, WorldBeyondWar.org and RootsAction.org are places you can go. Um, I, 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 I may be just overly cynical. I've been, you know, watching this stuff for decades now, but, uh, if you've got thousands and thousands of people working on foreign policy and they're getting everything wrong, it can't all be because there are priorities taking precedence, right? And I, I look at, at Yemen, uh, widely labeled the biggest humanitarian crisis on earth for years and years now. Uh, and you have a Congress that votes twice in both houses uh, to end the war on Yemen using the War Powers Resolution of 1973 as never before, uh, when they could count on a veto. They could count on a veto. You know, I mean, you watch the Democrats in the California legislature pass single-payer health care whenever the governor is a Republican, whenever they, they've got a veto to rely, they, they no risk of actually doing anything, they'll pass it. You know, and, and now you have Biden come in, and yes, he makes this vague statement uh, about sort of kind of ending part of the U.S. participation in the war on Yemen, and 41 Congress members send him a letter with the deadline of March 25th to tell us exactly what you mean, and as far as I can tell, they get no response whatsoever, one way or another, what he means. Uh, and yet they don't do anything. They don't do, and, and, you know, missile, Trump blows up somebody in Iraq with a missile. Suddenly there's a bill in Congress to prevent, to, to forbid it, right? But this time, you know, if it's Biden, nothing. Is there, why, if you were Congress and you didn't have to lift a finger, strain a muscle, get any blisters, I mean, the work would be simply saying, yay. That would be the work, you know. That, that's that's the effort needed. Why would why would they not end the war on Yemen or the U.S. participation, which is absolutely necessary for the Saudi war on Yemen, uh, in the past two and a half months, simply because the president is a Democrat? Uh, what am I missing? No, I mean, <laughs> these are great questions and great points. Um, I mean, I would like to see a much stronger uh, response from the administration in terms of um, future engagement with um, with Saudi Arabia. And it's I mean, I I don't know what else to say, honestly. Um, You know, he made some he made some pretty positive and comments throughout the campaign. I think it was one of the debates, right, where um, where then candidate Biden referred to Saudi Arabia as like this pariah state and that's what they should be known for, right? Where we thought that once he came into office that this um, relationship would, would change significantly. Um, right. And we haven't seen that. 
unfortunately. So, um, and, you know, to my colleagues at, at various organizations that uh, kind of follow the money trail, the influence of, um, you know, uh, again, like foreign foreign influence on our, on our government, I think they can probably kind of guess as to why <laughs> this relationship is the way that it is. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I- I, I, I had a guest on this program who was uh, investigating, you know, corruption, uh, campaign funding and so forth. And I and it was right after Senator Sanders had just held a hearing with Neera Tandon as a nominee uh, now defeated uh, and had asked opened the thing asking about all the corporate money. But not one word about money from United Arab Emirates, from the foreign dictatorships. And I said, why would he do that when he knew every Republican was going to take the microphone and praise the corporate funding as a good thing? Would they have done that if he'd mentioned United Arab Emirates? And this guy, my guest on the show, said, well, nobody's going to bring up Saudi funding or UAE funding because that's too normal. Everybody Mm -hmm. has it. Interesting. What do you mean? What do you mean it's too normal? You can't. I mean, it, you can't mention it because everybody has it. Seems like more reason to mention it to me. Uh, is it is it perfectly normal now to be funded by by foreign dictatorships? I I mean, it, it shouldn't be. Um, and my colleagues at the Center for National Policy have done extensive work, really phenomenal work on um, revealing those uh, those connections and. It, it should never be acceptable. Uh, so yeah, CAP gets Center for American Progress. I I don't know the exact number, but they get pretty significant funding from the from the UAE. So um, and it's important, you know, it's important for lawmakers to to raise those concerns. And uh, I remember I watched that hearing, and I remember thinking the same thing that oh, I wonder really? why they didn't bring bring that up. Yeah. It was very strange to me. I guess to others, it was perfectly uh, predictable. Um, uh, what about you mentioned the, the the funding of the military, which, uh, yeah, to, to take away mere 10 percent just from the Pentagon's budget, not all the other military budgets would just move us back a little. Um, but to go back to September 11th, 2001, I think you could take away closer to 50 percent. Um, uh, I mean, it's just enormous have you seen i i I know there's you know there's been a letter and there's supposedly a new caucus um but have you seen anything to really uh encourage you to think anyone is going to to take a stand or make any sort of uh movement of money out of the military happen yeah i I think you probably noticed david that it's that this has been a pretty difficult fight so, so last year's NDAA, um, this the, the 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 amendment that Barbara Lee, Representative Pocan, and Senator Sanders introduced for the annual defense um, authorization bill, that was the priority amendment for the Congressional Progressive Caucus, right? So they they laid everything out. That that was that was it. They, you know, made it very clear to leadership that if that amendment does not pass, the entire Progressive Caucus would be voting no on the final bill of the defense bill. 
right? So that was the entire strategy. And the main reason for that was because in the past, as you know, there were a series of these progressive, great amendments that, you know, folks like Kana and Lee would, would do for the NDAA. It would pass the House, it wouldn't pass in the Senate, and then it would get stripped out of the final bill, and then the, the, the caucus would get burned. So, and, and they they laid it out. They made it a priority last year. And I imagine they would make this this amendment, the 10% cut, a priority again in this year's uh, defense bill. I I think the, the goal is to, to try to at least increase the amount of support they get on this amendment every year. So last year, I, I can't re- recall how many senators voted for it, but in the House, there was more than 90 House members that supported it, which you know, to to the Coley's, it was very, very significant. Uh, they're hoping that number will increase drastically this year. And I think the goal, as you noted, with, with the new caucus that has been created uh, is to, and we had a number of kind of in-person or Zoom meetings with with the with Congress Mapo Khan, Representative Barbara Lee, their staff, and, um, you know, half a dozen or dozen other advocates trying to figure out what we can to do leading up to the introduction of that amendment and how to build more support for it. So, um, so I mean, there's going to be, I know there's going to be a series of kind of grassroots actions leading up to it. Hopefully, again, I think this is, this is one of those fights, as you know, it's just, we're in it for the, for the long haul. Uh, I, I would be surprised if, if it passes, um, you know, if it passes this year, but but I think that the, the whole goal is to continue to build more support for it every year. Which could go on for centuries, I think. Uh, but where you said if they don't get it, then the whole Progressive Caucus will vote against the final bill. Which is what they did Needless last. to say, that didn't happen. Um, and that never happens. Um, what do you mean? The, the the final bill after the after the nice amendment doesn't pass the Senate and they reconcile and they've got a final bill and anything good isn't in it, uh, you'd never get a block of House members voting against that bill. Which, if you had them, and the Republicans for their own crazy reasons were voting against the bill would mean actually having power, actually accomplishing something, because then you you know you you'd have to either please the Republicans or please the progressives and the progressives would have a chance that it might be them. Right. I mean, we, and we've seen this for decades. We've had letters with 80, 90, uh, Congress members swearing they're going to vote against any funding for the war on Iraq. They're going to vote against any increased military budget. And then 70, 80, 85 of them turn around and don't. Uh, and, and so I, I'm wondering, how much good it does us even if we got you know 195 of them to vote yes on a nice amendment when you can't get three of them to take a stand and say we're gonna we're gonna vote against the final bill if it funds over 90 percent of the current level even if that actually accomplishes something even if it actually mm-hmm. stops the bill yeah so so last year what i remember happening and i think that that's another concern of the progressive caucus right and was 
you know, and a reason for like the rule changes to, to get a more united caucus where they would have more leverage and power. Um, because you're right. So that was that was the game plan. That was um, what the the CPC had said had had told members to do. And you're right. Several of the caucus members still ended up voting for the bill. And I remember at that time. Um, and I'm not sure. Sh- I, I, yeah, I, I can't remember if we were in touch um, last year throughout that time around the 1033 amendments. But what happened was while this was happening, while the 10% spending cut amendment was was you know getting voted on and the debates were happening and what kind of strategy the Progressive Caucus should have with the you know overall NDAA uh, is. So they they had told leadership that they would be that that the, that the Progressive Caucus would not be supporting the final bill if their ten percent cut amendment was not in it. And leadership figured that okay, well, even without you know these members' support, we can still have enough votes to pass NDA. And they were right; they had enough Republican votes that the bill was going to pass. And they basically ignored the Progressive Caucus, and they were like, okay, well, screw you. Like we're still gonna get this bill passed. So, but what happened with with us? Because we were simultaneously trying to push Hank Johnson's 1033 amendment, and then we, as you probably know, throughout that process, kind of got screwed because because the moderate Dems and then the moderate Dems started voicing concerns to leadership that hey, if this you know anti-military police militarization amendment 1033 amendment gets through like we can't vote for it so these are moderate dems going to to like dem leadership telling them hey you cannot you know make this amendment in order and that's what happened in the 11th hour our the amendment we were pushing that we thought we were going to get a vote on and if we had gotten a vote on it it would have passed um and it would have been included in the bill that we got screwed because that never was even brought up for consideration so but it's look just, at the progressives who voted yes anyway, right? They voted yes anyway. I mean, it, it, it's they, they just don't have any commitment, any any sense of uh, of self respect or or actual intention here. Um, and and now Congresswoman Lee and Congressman Pocahontas say they're creating a new caucus, the quote unquote defense spending reduction caucus. But there isn't apparently any requirement when you join it. You aren't. You aren't committing to taking any particular stand on anything. You just want to be in a caucus with that name, as far as I can tell. Okay. <laughs> um, I Well, I hope they have some, I don't know, some, <laughs> some expectations. Oh. Maybe maybe they're opening it up to the members that, you know, voted yes on their amendment. Who knows? <laughs> I, I who knows? Um, we've got just like two minutes left, Yasmin Taib. Um, you you started out this uh, show talking about fleeing a military draft, um, and while the Republicans were running things so horribly in Washington D.C., we didn't have to worry about draft uh, registration being expanded to women uh, because Republicans don't think women are worth. Uh, oh, sure. you know, 
Yeah, so I'm sorry if it was confusing. This was for, for my brother, my 15 yes, Yeah, I understood perfectly well. Yes, your brother uh, did the noble, admirable thing and got the heck out of there before being drafted into the military. Uh, in the United States, there is now uh, very likely in this same bill that we're talking about mm -hmm. uh, going to be the expansion of draft registration to double it to include women along okay. with men, uh, which we didn't have with the Republicans running the show because they're sexists and <laughs> think that women can't, you know, do anything. Uh, but of course, you could treat men and women equally by abolishing draft registration, as many countries have done. What's what's your position? Uh, I honestly haven't haven't really thought about it. <laughs> um, I I mean, the abolishing it for both would probably make sense. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it would be it would be it would make it exactly equal and fair it wouldn't be discriminating it wouldn't be denying the women the right to be forced yeah. against their will to kill and die uh if you got rid of it for everybody right yeah yeah um yasmin taibu with just uh less than a minute left where where can people keep in touch uh follow up uh be be informed of what you're working on yeah, so I, I'm on Twitter and my contact information, it's just my full name, yasmintaib at gmail.com. Uh, there's kind of various projects and efforts that uh, my colleagues and I are always working on, uh, trying to advance a more progressive uh, restraint of um, foreign policy and um, yeah, and making sure that human rights is centered in, in U.S. foreign policy in any way that I can be of assistance, um, please don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you. Thank you very, very much, Yasmin Taib, for coming on Talk World Radio. Sure. Thanks so much, David. This is Talk World Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org. All past shows can be heard at talkworldradio.org. Talk World Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way.